You're listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast with Ian Tullock and Anthony Petrielli. Welcome to the Maple Leaf Hot Stove Podcast. My name's Ian Tullock. I'm here with Anthony Petrielli, but more importantly, we have a guest joining us today. Anthony, I'll let you introduce him. I'm told we're supposed to call him Bruce, so I'm going to go with Bruce, but uh, Bruce Brujo is here with us today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Bruce, we're big fans of your work over the last few years. I mean, you've coached uh, players at a high level in Washington, Ovechkin on the power play, had a great power play unit running in Anaheim there. I've also got some Minnesota Wild questions for you later in this podcast, but when we put out the tweet that you were going to be joining us today, everyone wanted to ask about the Leafs power play. It's something that you've helped run other units before in the past, and I'm sure you've been watching a lot of Leafs games right now. Their power play has been struggling, to say the least, over the last month. You watching the tape, and when you're breaking down what they're trying to accomplish tactically, I'm curious what you see. When you're watching these games, what is it that you think the biggest problem has been over the last month? Well, one of the things with the Leafs is they're very, very skilled, and we all know that, and especially their two power play units. uh, um, But I think what they try to do is they try to be too cute. Um, They, I think sometimes they don't realize that just getting it back to the point and shooting the puck and winning battles in front of the net and getting greasy goals will open up everything if they, uh, if they do that first. But I, I think they try to make plays first and, um, and then the, the, def- the defensive team does not have to move. They stay in their box and they box out and they don't uh, let the Leafs to the inside. And it becomes a, a problem for them because I think if they started to get a little dirtier um, and I don't mean tactically, wise but i mean um just get mixed up a little bit they would uh, they would have success i mean if they they look at all the great power plays there's uh, a couple things that they're all all um uh are the same is they win battles they play to the inside they retrieve pucks and they always started at the point like i mean uh to get the puck at the half wall and then just use the half wall to the back of the net if you retrieve it really um really nullifies what you want to do which is spread the defense out and um the leafs do too much of that they should be uh quite frankly retrieving pucks getting it back to the point and every time starting over again and i mean they got the talent on my god to uh uh to to do this and be very successful i mean whether it's matthew's Matthews, Marner, and, and Morgan Riley with Tavares and, and, and Hyman. Hyman's out a little bit now, but um, I mean, or Nylander on there. They, they've got the ability um, to, to do this and score, but uh, I think they're being a little too stubborn right now. And I know one thing I tend to get concerned about when I hear point shots on a power play, I think back to Morgan Riley letting wrist shots go from the blue line. And I'm a nerd. I look up all the expected goals and the expected shooting percentage. And I'm sure you know as, as well as anyone that a, a wrist shot from the blue line, it doesn't have a very good chance of going in. But I guess the way that you're talking about using it is not just as an avenue for scoring, but you're trying to get deflection. You're trying to get the rebound. You're trying to get four players to converge and win the offensive rebounds so that you can create some chaos off of that. How do you walk that line between trying to spread the ice, trying to threaten opposing teams with a shot from distance, but you also you don't want to rely too much on a low percentage shot. So how do, how do you walk that line? I don't think anybody uh, uh, on the expected shot value from the point is probably nil unless uh, unless they're they're using 
the the goalie can't see the puck at all and he's screened and everything else i mean he should stop everyone but it it starts there i mean if you get net presence and you get the shots from the point and wherever they ricochet or rebound to and you've got your two half wall guys going to get it first that get, that gets them uh the defense uh spread out and moving and if you don't get the defense moving you you don't you don't get opportunities but if you get the defense moving you've got the extra man that's where it becomes valuable to you and you usually have a guy open so you mentioned uh you mentioned that they have the puck on the half wall a lot so we know that they're trying to kind of run it through mitch marner now mitch marner is not really a shooter right like he has zero power play goals this year Mm -hmm. i mean do they just have to get the puck off his stick and or move him some like because teams just don't respect him really as a threat no, the, you can cover three other guys, and uh, you just sit there and say, hey, listen, we're going to let Mitch shoot the puck. So, I mean, goalie, you got to stop the puck when Mitch shoots it, and he doesn't shoot it often enough. I mean, they like to go down low to back up to Tavares, and, and that's uh, not as difficult a play to stop as you might think. Um, if the defense on that side, um, instead of taking a step towards the down low guys, first step is towards – the guy in the middle of the ice and you let the goalie uh and originally take the guy down low very rarely do they come out in front and jam at home i mean uh, um patrick wall was the first where i heard he'd said listen let me take the down low guy because that makes it a four on four and that's how we used to um uh try to cover alex uh when i was against him is we would make sure everybody was covered and and that's such a bad angle. Let the goalie take that, that, um, that down low guy. And, and so the, the, you have a second or so to recover and because his jam play doesn't usually work. I mean, uh, uh, if you just try to think back of how many goals go down low and they jam it uh, in front of the net and it's in the net, it's not. So, I mean, um, that's probably the least dangerous guy on the ice after you get the after you get the puck low so that's why i prefer you go up top and then you create everything up top you brought up alex ovechkin he was obviously the biggest shot threat on that washington power play if you adjust for era he's the greatest goal scorer of all time that one timer from we call it the ovechkin spot everyone knows that's where you want to get the puck going so a lot of the times you'll see teams overcommit to taking that shot away Right now, if you look at the Leafs' power play, it's a bit of a different setup because Austin Matthews tends to be on that left side, which is his strong side. It's not a slap shot one-timer. It's more of a catch and release on his wrist shot, but it's still a shot threat from the left side of the ice. Right now, I feel like teams are over-committing to that shot, and the Leafs aren't doing a good enough job of countering it with the other space that's available. How did you go about countering when teams would overcommit to Alex Ovechkin back, back in Washington? Well, I mean, when you... When they were over committing to Alex, you had um, when I was there, you had Semin in the uh, the middle, and he scored forty goals that year. So I mean, and you had Nick Backstrom could make the play to either one. So I mean, you were if you're over committing to Alex, we use the guy in the middle, the bumper guy. Um, if not, uh, Mike Green used to be able to put it right in the the garden spot for Alex, just like John John Carlson does now. And uh, so I mean. You had too many guys to cover. The thing about this is if um, if you know that Austin Matthews doesn't have a one-timer 
Okay. Now he's got a tremendous release and we, we gather that and we understand that. And Mitch Marner's not going to shoot. It's really a tough thing um, for both sides on the half wall. Uh, there's not really a great threat for bang, bang kind of play. It takes time to corral it. If Riley's passing your puck, it's a lefty to a lefty. That's a difficult play. You would like it to a righty to a lefty for, uh, or you would like Marner hitting Matthews uh, across because he can get the puck away in a hurry, but you can't get a one timer or you can't, it's more difficult. You have to come out higher uh, if you're Matthews to get the puck from Riley to sort of get it on the good angle. So it makes, makes it more difficult to get the shot away. You also had Nicholas Backstrom speaking of non-shooters with, you know, kind of similar to Mitch Marner in that way. Like obviously a guy that kind of looks to dish the puck, but when you had Backstrom and I looked this up, I didn't actually know this going in. So he had his career high in goals under you and he had his career high in power play goals under you, not even in the same season that he had the 33 goal season. So did, did you really push him? Like, you know, Hey, like guys are loading up. He was on his forehand, and if they backed off and they tried to take, um, whether it be Semin or, or whoever in the middle, and then they tried to take Alex, we always told Nick that if, if nobody attacked him by the dot, take one step to the middle, then your angle is great, and he had a great wrist shot, and use the wrist shot because then they have to honor that wrist shot. I mean, from the dot, inside the dot, in, um, from the half wall, his wrist shot was lethal. So if you didn't honor it, um, he was going to shoot. If you did honor it, he was going to pass it. And so it was a pick your poison type of scenario. And, you know, we tried to go to Alex a bit and they would overplay it. And then Nick would just walk to the middle and shoot it himself. And usually the short side uh, uh, over the glove was a, a great shot for Nick back then. The best power plays tend to be the ones where you have to pick your poison. I'm thinking of Tampa Bay where you have a Kucherov on one side of the ice, a Stamkos on the other side of the ice, Braden Point in the middle. Someone's going to burn you. If you throw a bunch of talent out there, like you said, Alex Semin in the middle of the ice, Alex Ovechkin on the left side of the ice, Backstrom on the right half wall, someone's going to beat you. I think back to when Patrick Lane was on Winnipeg, he scared teams from the left side of the ice. That left Mark Shifley wide open in the middle of the ice. If you're running Toronto's power play unit and you have all these weapons, you have a Matthews, a Marner, a Tavares, a Riley, maybe a Nylander or a Hyman net front presence, where are you putting them on the ice to make sure that you're maximizing their talents? Well, for me, I would be switching Marner and Matthews up. That way, if Marner um, gets the puck and he's such a great passer, he's also got Tavares in the middle to give the one-timer to I mean, uh, Marner to Tavares on the other side, all you got is the shot tip. And that's not that difficult to take away. And it's hard to uh, have a great accuracy level when you, when you uh, have the guy in the, in the shot tip uh, uh, situation. So I would move those two guys for sure. I would keep, actually, I would probably put uh, somebody else um, in the middle there and have two units. I mean, uh, a one and one a I would probably have Nylander and Tavares on on the other unit with somebody and now that they've got Felino, even though Hyman's hurt they could have those three guys and even Spezza's is uh, good for short term um, um, getting the puck away so I mean I think you know when you're loading one t one lineup or one unit up it's 
uh, it's not hard with video these days to see what their tendencies are. But if you've got two units to go and, uh, um, you know, you always have a fresh unit out there, you know, I mean, it's if the one unit is out there and they get the penalty called against them, they don't have to stay on. The other unit can come on and then uh, they can go the second half. So, I mean, that the, those are just some of the things that I think they do. And I don't know what, I don't know what they do or how they do it, but uh, um, you know, uh, one of the things we did all the time was uh, every game day, we would go over the previous, uh, uh, not only the previous team, but the previous numbers. And we always kept the numbers uh, there. Like we had six retrievals or, or uh, we were six for seven on the, on the face-offs. And over the course of time, you would see the what would work. Like if you were six or seven on the power play um, one day and uh, um, you had eight retrievals, say, you usually could find out that you were successful. Or if it was you had nine shots on goal and all of these things. And then and on the other hand, if you found out you were one for six on the faceoffs and you had two retrievals and you didn't have success, you knew what was going to make you successful. So it made sense to work harder at those things if that makes any sense to you guys. No, it does for sure. And when you, so when you talk about splitting the units, I, get, I think one thing that's kind of happened a little bit in Toronto and can see it with a few guys that are on the first power play unit at times, but like how much does like inter like team politics to a degree impact that? Like who actually gets power play time? Because some guys clearly get upset and or potentially suck out when they, you know, they're not necessarily on the top power play unit or they don't get any power play time. And you can kind of see it like it goes to their legs negatively. But, like, you know, as a coach, do you even care? Or at some point are you kind of like, I need to, you know, at times you've seen it with Nylander. They're like, we got to get this guy on the first power play unit. Like he's kind of languishing out on PP2. If you had a one and a one A unit and, um, uh, I always made a point of of uh, on trying on the first two power plays to start both units um, first, and then it was like a who was on the ice or who was hot, and if you were hot, you got to go on first, and if not, you went second. And we we always had changes at the minute minute mark. Like I know Alex stays out for two minutes on the point because he doesn't skate anyway, so he's never tired. <laughs> Um, I was going to say, uh, I think Alex played all two, right? <laughs> always. Oh, he just he hung at the far off. blue line on the entries. Yeah. I'm not going to skate yeah. back on those. Pumps. Yeah. He would just sit there. And uh, when he didn't have the puck, he'd be crouched over with his stick on his knees and wait for the puck. So he could do it. But um, if you, if you had the point where each uh, power play unit was getting a minute, 50 seconds or a minute 10, and you were switching them up all the time, first of all, uh, the players would know that it's not a favoritism thing. It's who's going is getting it. Who's not going is not getting it. And um, I, I don't think it would be a problem, but I agree with you. Goal scorers want to be on the power play, but if it's made the point early in the season that, um, that we're going splitting and, you know, unless the coach feels that uh, one line is super hot, they're not getting the, the first unit all the time. Um, then that's one thing. If, if, if you're selfish and you're, you're sulking when you don't get on the power play, well, then that's an, another reason to look at who your personnel is and say, I mean, this is not a guy we can win with. 
one of the things I get worried about when we split power play time is that you leave your best player on the bench for a time where you'd really want to create a goal. And it's always why my philosophy tends to be put your five best players on the ice, leave them out there for a minute, 20 minute, 30 and see what happens. Eventually the best players on the ice will break teams down. I know that's what Pittsburgh's done over the last few years. Washington's done it. Uh, Dom Lestrigian at the athletics written about this, about how teams that give their PP one more ice time, they'll tend to score more goals in the power play. So it's tough when you're trying to find the right balance between do we want two good units or do we want one great unit and then a second unit that we're probably not going to trust in too many high leverage minutes? Well, I mean, it's, I guess it's to each his own. I mean, um, we, in Minnesota, we had uh, for the four years, we were over 20, 21% every, every year. And I mean, we didn't have the greatest players in the world there, but uh, in, uh, in Anaheim, we were number one, in two out of the four years I was there and we always had two units. And in Washington, uh, the one year we had 26%, uh, which was a, a solid five and a half percent better than the next one. And I mean, we, you know, with that, we had the great unit um, of Backstrom, uh, Backstrom, Semin, uh, Oveshkin, uh, Green, and whoever the down low guy, it could have been one of three or four different guys, whether it was Marcus Johansson, Brooks like Thomas Fleischman. Um, we didn't have Kuznetsov, but I mean, uh, so, I mean, you had the, the number one unit out there because I thought that we didn't have five other guys that were good enough to um, challenge these guys to be the number one unit. But on the same token, um, if you have five guys to, or at least three guys, three up front guys to challenge the number one unit, I mean, I think, uh, I think it, bodes better for the team as a team concept type situation. Shifting gears a little bit from, uh, from the power play just to the overall play. So they're, they're Oh three and two in their last five. Uh, Keith kind of came out and he essentially called out the goalie, probably goalies after the last game. And, you know, he more or less said like, I think we're playing well, but it's hard to out outperform goaltending. That is this bad, which, Definitely held true in the 6-3 game. What's your level of concern? Going into the playoffs, did you ever have like a, a little run in the stretch drive where you saw something and went like, I don't know about this team anymore? Um, I don't know if I ever went, I didn't know about this team, but there was a lot of times we had young goalies and we didn't know if the young goalies would be able to do it. I mean, in Anaheim, I had Gibson and Anderson. Um, in... Um, uh, in Washington, you'd have Neuvirth and Varlamov, uh, Varlamov or Holtby, and they were young. I mean, my first year, I had Huey and um, um, I forget the veteran guy. Uh, Is it Jose Theodore? Uh, I had Theodore the one year with Varlamov, and Theodore started the first two games, and he was horrible. And <laughs> uh, we were down 0-2, so I mean. Um, quite frankly, I went and talked to Nick and Alex and I said, do you guys have confidence in Varley who had only played five games up to that point um, going in and, and they, they wanted him in um, badly. And I mean, we They're won like, the save first us. game. <laughs> yeah. We won the first game two to one. We lost one, nothing. Then Varley won the last three games with the third game being two to one. And then he went to Pittsburgh and, uh, the problem with is that in the seven game series against Pittsburgh and they ended up beating us in seven and winning the cup, 
that would that was the twelfth uh, game in a row for Varley, and he hadn't played twelve games all year. He just game six and seven he wasn't very good, but I had already made my bed, and that's who I was going with, and um, we we lost. And in um, my last year in Anaheim, I wanted to start Gibson, or no, I wanted to start Freddie, and uh, I got um, uh, the GM wanted Gibson to start. So Gibson ended up with the start and he lost the first two games. And I said, the hell with it. They're going to probably fire me if we lose anyway. So I put Freddie in, he won the next three games and uh, he lost games six and seven. So that's the biggest fear with me, with the Leafs, if Freddie gets back in, he's lost games six and seven um, for me twice. He's lost game seven with the Leafs a couple times, maybe three times. So, I mean, um, if the series does go seven games, um, I don't have a lot of confidence in him in game seven. have a lot of confidence in him any other time, but not game seven. You're the expert of game sevens, Bruce, when it comes yeah. to just being an yeah. excellent coach for the regular season and then life blowing up in your face in a game seven. It's not fair sometimes, but yeah. you, co- you coach Frederick Anderson. You know him really well. How do you think he's handling the last month or so? Because this has been his net for the last few years. If you look at his first three years in a Leafs uniform, a 918 save percentage in 60 plus games every season. He's obviously struggled lately coming off of an injury. Jack Campbell had seemingly taken the net, but now we're not really sure who the goaltender is going to be for game one of the playoffs. You know him well, personally. How do you think he's handling the situation? I, you know what? I I guarantee he wants to get healthy and get the net back. I mean, uh, he is a UFA next year and uh, he wants to go, go in, um, uh, really you know playing his best now the one thing about freddie is he's not great when uh he's playing hurt so he's got to feel a hundred percent healthy when he's when he plays and i think that's why he's being held out these days until because i think before he was um put on the shelf he was playing hurt because campbell was hurt and uh you know they didn't have faith in in anybody else but uh, so he was not playing up to par, but if he comes back and he's healthy, I have all the faith in the world that he's going to be great. I'm not entirely sure this is true, but it almost kind of feels like, like, you know, he, he kind of did them a solid and he was playing hurt and he didn't play that well and he got criticized. So eventually he goes out with the injury and Campbell comes in and plays really well. And, you know, Frederick Anderson is essentially like, uh, indirectly criticized, right? Like, oh, the Leafs finally have good goaltending again. And it, it almost seems a little bit like, and I don't know if this is the case, but maybe even from his camp, it's kind of like, I'm not coming back until I'm healthy this time because I did it last time and I got like raked through the coals. So I'm not putting myself through that. I think that's fairly accurate myself. Yeah. And then when we talk about these kind of like star players, so we're kind of seeing too with the Leafs, like, so they have Joe Thornton and Jason Spezza and even Wayne Simmons to a degree. And, and they're all kind of varying in, in overall careers, but you've, you've had a few of these hall of fame and, and really, really good players on the back ends of their career. Like at the very end, like you had Sergei Fedorov before he retired, you had Timu Solani before he retired, you know, even guys like Saku Koivu, like how do you manage these guys yeah, and Miku Koivu. And like, 
So how do you manage these sorts of players who like they're not what they once were? Because honestly, like I'm watching Joe Thornton in the lineup every night. I'm like, this guy cannot play every night. No, I think you're right again. And it's uh, difficult. But the one thing that all of them have in common is they don't think they've lost it. Yeah, <laughs> they never all do. Professional athletes are wired that way, right? You got to be confident. hundred percent. They They worry. I'm not getting enough ice time. And uh, if you give me more ice time, I'll be better. Um, but uh, the uh, uh, they never want to admit that they're on the back 40 of their career. And uh, uh, they, the first thing they do every night is look at um, look at ice times. I mean, I could have told you, uh, you know, and I did tell my friends, I said, Joe Thornton, you know, coached against him for the last few years and and he was, he has really, had really slowed down in uh, San Jose. And if you took time, he would make a play if you took, if you didn't take time and space away from him. But if you took time and space away, he couldn't get away. And I know he started out great, but a lot of that was, to me, was more um, Toronto hype, Toronto media hype. But Adrenaline. Uh, yeah, I just think uh, he is exactly where I thought he would be. Um, Spezza who can look really uh, good is exactly where I thought he would be. And Wayne Simmons, let's remember, like, I mean, uh, uh, he wasn't very good at the end in Philly. He was not good in Buffalo at all. Um, we Jersey. were contemplating signing him and uh, we didn't. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I, I love his lead. I love all of the leaderships, but I mean, in the end, it's great to have great leaders, but you got to that fourth line come playoff time is about as important as any line you're going to get. And uh, it, usually they're going to play 10 plus minutes a night. And if they don't play 10 plus minutes, they're not very useful. How, how hard are these conversations? Cause honestly I'm watching. And so they, they healthy scratch Pierre Engvall and admittedly like Engvall's had some pretty, pretty crappy games of late but like, he's the easy guy to scratch there. Like it's easy to go to Pierre Engvall and be like, take a seat. It's hard to go to, you know, Joe Thornton and say, I'm going to arrest you. But like, they kind of need to, like, I, like it almost seems like they're avoiding the hard conversation at this point. Uh, you could be right. I don't know, but I mean, that's uh, that sounds, you're right. You know, I mean, if they were to come over and say Mihailov, you're going to sit or Engvall, you're going to sit or even Kerfoot, you're going to sit. That's a, that's a no um, nonsense um, thing, but when you have to sit Joe Thornton, the media is going to be all over it. I had to sit. I sat Timu Solani one night, and uh, I thought the world was going to cave in. And at <laughs> and, and in Anaheim, you don't get any media, and it was nationwide. So it's uh, um, it's it's something you know that I'm I'm sure the coaches are looking at, and and they won't say it, but uh, uh, they say sometimes he might need it, might need a break. Um, like with Timu, we were going to rest him after the Olympics, but he became the MVP of the Olympics. So, I mean, yeah. we, we sat back there says we couldn't rest him. We were going to send him to Hawaii for two weeks vacation and then come <laughs> back rested to play for the playoffs. But you couldn't do it after he won the uh, MVP. And, but it's a different game being over in um, uh, Europe playing in the big rink with no hitting and then coming back to North America where they're uh, they, they take the time and space away from you all the time. 
I wanted to ask you, have you ever been put in a situation where you were forced to play a player that you knew wasn't one of your 12 best forwards, but because of factors other than on ice performance, you figured this is going to be the best way to help our team's chances of winning, whether it's an impact in the locker room, leadership, character. Cause I'm thinking that as a nerd, I tend to focus so much on player performance and trying to evaluate which players are playing the best. But sometimes I'm wondering if there are factors outside of just on ice performance that we need to consider when you're constructing a 12 forward lineup. Uh, I think there, there are at times, I mean, you don't want to make a habit of it that uh, you want to make your best. You want to put your best players on the ice uh, all the time. Sometimes you have to make an example of somebody that you don't want to do. And, and when I used to have to do that, I didn't want to do it. Listen, coaches are, are human. We don't want to do that thing. But in the end, the question I always ask is what's best for the team at this moment. And that's what usually um, made my decision for me. So, I mean, uh, you would, you'd go, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Then you'd sit there and you'd come because they're hard, they're hard uh, um, explanations to the players. And uh, it's amazing when you're talking to a player that's been in the league for a lot of years and uh, you have to tell him he's not playing tonight. Boy, it's, it's not the easiest thing in the world. I mean, when I told Timu he wasn't playing that white uh, one night, uh, I mean, he tried to outweigh weight me on the ice after practice, and I stayed there for an extra 45 minutes while I watched him just shoot pucks into an empty net until he came over, and I had to tell him, and my heart was racing because you don't like to tell a Hall of Famer and a player as great as he was that he's not playing. It's not fun. What was that conversation like? It wasn't fun. And, <laughs> he, you know, I, and, He's shooting pucks, eh? He's like, I'm hungry. I, like, I need to go eat lunch, but yeah, like, I don't well, want to sit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he was trying to outweigh me. And, uh, um, but I mean, you have to do what you have to do. I mean, it's, uh, uh, he wasn't happy. I didn't expect him to be happy. Like coaches don't expect, coaches really don't want guys that uh, are happy when they, when they sit out. I mean, um, I had to do it uh, with uh, Pominville. I sat him out one night and I'm going, Jesus, Jason, you're a good guy and, and you've done everything you want, but, we got a heavy stretch of games and um, I'm going to, you know, I mean, this was after the trade deadline. We're going to, we're going to move some guys around. I didn't like doing it, but uh, it was something me and the GM at the time had talked about and, and uh, we did it and it didn't work. I mean, we lost in Winnipeg that night, so I didn't do it anymore. How hard is it as, as a coach to kind of ad- admit those? I mean, that's a one-off game mistake, but you know, if you're trying something systemically for a month or two, and it's just not really clicking. I think Ian had an example from Minnesota. It's actually Anaheim I wanted to bring up. There was one year where things weren't working out for you guys structurally, so you changed to a neutral zone trap team halfway through the season, and your actually, results that, drastically changed at 5-on-5. Five five. That was actually, it was in Washington. Um, it was Washington, too? Okay, there you go. Well, <laughs> we started out, we, you know, we were a high-octane team, and then the one year we weren't scoring. We went through a 10-game phase where we weren't scoring. So me and George McPhee, we just, you know, I said, let's change everything up. So we changed everything up the next day, went on like a 13 game win streak, allowed no goals. I think we went 18 games where we allowed two goals or less and uh, won most of them. And uh, we continued to play like that in Anaheim. It was the same way. Uh, We played a one, two, two, but we got really, really strict with it because we started out one, seven and two. We couldn't score. We got shut out six times in uh, the first 10 games in Anaheim. I remember that season. 
And in the end, we ended up with the number one power play and the number one penalty kill. And I think we were second in the league in goals against, or I don't know if that was the year we won the Jennings. We won the, the Jennings the one year, and then we were second the next year. So, I mean, if you're not scoring, you got to tell the team, okay, listen, we're not scoring, and that's great. We're going to continue doing what we do and forechecking, but we're not going to allow the other team any goals. So if we have to win two to one, we're going to win two to one. It always seemed like Getzlaff and Perry were kind of like chilling for the first month of the season when you were in Anaheim <laughs> and then um, slowly picked up their games as things, as time went on. <laughs> sometimes it was the first two months of the season. Um, <clears throat> but you know what happens? And this is, and, uh, I've seen it in Tampa. I've seen it in a lot of teams is when you win the cup and you start out the next year, you, you think, okay, we've got time. We'll, we'll get our shit together and uh, we'll get better. And, and so they did that the first uh, couple of years after they won the cup. And that's why, excuse me, Randy ended up getting let go because they were six and 14 and uh, uh, they just weren't into it the our best players weren't into it until they thought okay it's christmas time let's let's pick up and go and uh um you know you know in this league it's too tough to do that you got to start from day one as i mean i'll guarantee every coach in the league is uh uh scoreboard watching after the first week of the season not not the first uh month of the season or the first half of the season Uh, if they start out one and two they're looking at, oh my God, we got to get this this thing uh, this thing turned around. So we talk about game one of the season. So before this, and I, I know you've been asked about this a bunch. You had the the game one against Patrick Waugh uh, and the whole banging the glass thing, uh, which kind of gets forgotten now in that six one game. But the thing I have to ask because I actually I looked this up today because I wanted to make sure. So you guys beat them the other two times you played them that season. Yeah. I mean, what was pregame speech like next game against them? Like, what did you say to them, <laughs> the guys? Did they know they had to know? <laughs> I didn't have to say much. I mean, um, if you if you also look back, I mean, we lost 6-1. We had a really difficult practice the next day. Yeah. And then we went on a winning streak uh, right there. We won games two, three, and four, I think, uh, right off the bat. But uh, we just played soft. And when you play soft, uh, you're going to win. And when he... Um, when we made it six to one with five seconds to go in the game, we scored Silverberg scored to break their shutout yeah. and he threw tough guys out on the ice and tried to start that brawl at the end. I mean, our players remembered that and I made them remember it in the next two times we played them. And, and we joke about Getzlaff, but to me, like when you guys went to the Western conference finals, uh, that season with Anaheim, like, I don't think there was a player playing better hockey than Ryan Getzlaff at that time. Like he was amazing. No, he was great. And when your best players are your best players, um, usually you're going to win. And, uh, quite frankly, that's why Chicago did win because I think Taves got Taves had five points in his last two games and, and Perry and Getzlaff were minus six in the last two games. So there's the difference in game six and seven that the whole rest of the series, because we should, we were the better team the first five games. We won uh, game one. We lost game two in triple overtime. We won game three. We lost game four in double overtime. We won game five in overtime, but those five games, we were the better team in all, in all the games. And uh, um, it should have been over, but game six and seven, they were the better team and they're, 
their better players were better than our better players. Wanted to shift gears here and ask you a question about those Minnesota teams you coached. I was looking up the numbers before we recorded this, and from 2016 to 2019, Minnesota had the best defensive numbers in the league. You guys were so good at limiting shot quality. And it's funny because every head coach likes to talk about how, oh, no, we're just keeping things to the outside. Don't worry about the shots against. We're worried about the chances. We're worried about the high danger chances. Your teams were the best in the NHL at preventing those high danger chances. How do you go about doing that? Because I think it's something that every NHL head coach is trying to accomplish. You guys actually did it. So what were you doing differently from other NHL teams? Um, our, our number one thing was to protect the middle of the ice um, on all over the place, whether it be in their end. If we didn't have the puck, we weren't allowing them to come through the middle of the ice. In the neutral zone, they were never allowed to come through the middle of the ice. And if they had the puck in our zone, we wanted to give them uh, – I I always allowed the points, uh, the shots from the point to uh, uh, the passes to the point to be allowed as long as we had two or three guys going or at the front of the net and they had to go through layers of players to get the puck to the net. And so, I mean, it was one of those things where I wanted all my players to be able to block shots. And um, if you were in the best position defensively, as I figured, then you were in the best position offensively. And, and the other thing, too, is if you look at Boston and where Bergeron is always in that triangle offense, he's always in the slot or Craig Smith, whoever, if you've watched them recently and they score goals from there or, uh, or Pasternak all the time. We would not allow that. We would make sure that the wingers main um, main duty was to make sure that that guy in the slot, the most dangerous guy in the ice was not getting a shot on goal. And that's how we did it. And we took pride in that. Um, you know, I mean, uh, uh, we can look back and, and if you want to look at statistics and everything else, uh, I mean, um, you're right. We were, we gave up the fewest uh, high danger shots in the league every year in Minnesota, but we had the worst uh, uh, goaltending save percentage in, in, in from the high danger uh, spots too. So when they were getting a chance, it was going in. Yeah, Devin Dubnik those years, unfortunately, did not have his best seasons. But uh, when I'm thinking back to teams who take away the middle of the ice in the D zone, I'm thinking of the New York Islanders right now under Barry Trotz. You think Mm -hmm. of them collapsing into the slot, not letting any of those east-west passes through the middle of the ice. Middle ice is such an important area to take away in the D zone. But you brought up a great point of how you guys didn't only prioritize taking it away in the D zone, but also in the neutral zone and up the ice. Would you be able to elaborate a little bit more on how teams play defense, not just in the defensive end, but more up the ice? Because I think it's something that the average fan might not be paying attention to. Well, the neutral zone, for example, teams play one, three, one now and um, or one, one, three, depending on, and this all started with um, what's his nose who coached in Tampa uh, and then in Ottawa. Boucher. Uh, Boucher. Boucher. And, uh, um, but what we wanted to do, make it simple, we, we'd play a 1 2 2, but our weak side winger always played above the guy in the middle. So if they wanted to go um, w- uh, diagonal passes in the neutral zone, uh, we would make sure we'd have good sticks, but that we, that's all we would give them. And the other thing I always preach about is guarding lines. So, I mean, if you watch the next game, it just irks me to no end when defense or forwards or whoever get the red line and are able to dump it in. And if you look at Barry's teams, uh, or it used to be Torts' teams as well, uh, that it, 
their forward would attack before the red line. And then they had to make a 10 foot pass and rather than getting it deep in the other team's zone, don't um, let them get over the red line. That was a big priority. Yeah. I mean, make them make a 10 foot pass and then your D would be able to play up and attack them right away rather than back off. And it was the same as, um, uh, uh, in the in the offensive zone, we wanted our D going down the boards all the time. So our guy, our third guy, our F3, had to be high enough to allow the D to go down, and he was a safety valve so we wouldn't have odd man rushes all the time. But if, the, if he wasn't there, the D weren't allowed to go down because we didn't want two-on-ones happening all over the ice. But uh, you get it disciplined over time, I mean, during the course of the year, where the D would know exactly when to go to keep pucks in. And we would tell them if they keep them in, stay in there and, and create the plays. But again, he's be, he's in the middle of the ice protecting both sides of the, of the ice. The forward is. I'm glad you brought up F3 because this has been one of my biggest pet peeves in hockey for a long time where the defenseman makes the correct read to pinch down the wall to keep the play alive and his forward doesn't cover for him. And you'll see the cameraman pan to the defenseman and everyone will blame the defenseman for making what I think is the right play. But the F3, the high forward in the offensive zone, isn't covering for that player. I know you've coached in in certain situations where you might not have a a responsible F3, whether it's an Alex Semin or an Alex Ovechkin. They want to pinch to create offense. They want to lean on the side of scoring goals as opposed to getting back to play efficient defense. As a coach, how do you balance the systemic way of making sure that you have an F3 always there to cover for your defenseman versus talented players who want to take risks to score goals? Because I feel like that's kind of a, a difficult tightrope to walk where you want to let your creative players be creative, but you also do need to have some kind of team-wide structure where the forward is always covering for the defenseman. Well, first of all, F3, uh, the defense can't go in if there's no F3. They got to look first if he's not there. They can't go because then you're going to get caught all the time. But uh, uh, we would have our F3. If he was the guy that ended up forechecking, our rule of thumb was F3 could never go for a hit. He has to do what we'd call a soft block. In other words, he would have to swing and go stick on puck. His skates would have to be coming back towards our own goalie. So it didn't go like you could go like usually a tough guy wants to be in the F3 and they want to go for the big hit. The guy hits it. He bumps it. The defense jumps into the play. You look at Nashville all the time and it's three on twos. And we didn't, we didn't want that. So you had to be uh, doing a soft lock and eliminate that guy and to make it a two on two uh, all the time. So, I mean, over time and over practice, they learn this and if they don't do it, they don't play. And so they all learned it pretty good. When you talk about coaches and, and, and those systems, I'm just curious, and it doesn't matter if it's a guy that's in the league right now or not, but who, who did you find to be like the toughest coaches to go up against because of how they made their teams play or how they line matched or however they ran their whatever um, special teams? You know, Barry was really good at uh, doing what he did, and so was Tortorella and, uh, and Laviolette. Those are the three guys that I always thought was a really – uh, good game. I mean, I, I guess I got to throw Joel Quenville in there um, because it, when you, their team was always so good, they had the hammer all the time. They could put their fourth line was always the defensive line in their zone. And uh, then they would uh, uh, make it pretty simple um, offense in the offensive zone on faceoffs. They'd put the two, uh, the 
their two offensive lines out. So they had it down pat pretty good. But those and they're all veteran coaches that I'm mentioning, and and they were they were really good and they were smart at it. Tortorella seems to get the bad rep, but like from all accounts, I I think his players actually generally like him, uh, even if the media he's a little cagey with them. I think they generally like him, except for this year. Yeah. Yeah, he's it's it's not the best year right now in Columbus, to say the least. I think he's, you know, I mean, he's trying to be um, uh, confrontational as much as he can. And because I don't know why, but his team uh, isn't responding very well to uh, to what he's done. So and and all of us coaches, we, we have a timeline with a certain team. And after that, you both the coach and the the, the players need a, a need a new a new venue to work with so we'll see so speaking of coaches and kind of tactical adjustments i'm always looking in terms of how is the game evolving how is the game different today versus the way it was 10 years ago because i I, you can look up uh, the heat maps of where shot locations came from back in the early 2000s mid 2000s compared to where they're coming from now and we saw a lot more point shots back in the day and i think that having more creative puck movers on the blue line activate into the play and the, the F3 that we were talking about playing high in the zone, especially in the middle of the ice, we're seeing that a lot more often in the NHL. I know you're watching a lot of games right now. You're in it. You're making sure that you know what's up around the NHL. What are you seeing tactically that is maybe new over the last few years that certain teams are employing that maybe we wouldn't have seen five to 10 years ago? Well, I mean, you go back 10 years ago, they didn't have everybody on the ice blocking shots. When Torts was in the Rangers and they made a big deal about his players blocking shots and they had the block shots in Tampa when he won the cup, they had the block shots. So points were getting through from the point. They don't get through anymore. I mean, it's a, it's difficult. The front of the net is so crowded because players have no fear of getting hurt. 20 years ago, you went to the front of the net. You better watch your jaw because I mean, if you're battling that stick is right in your face all the time. And uh, so it doesn't take anywhere near as much courage anymore to go to the front of the net. Um, which I think is, is a big change. But the, the biggest change is every player is so fast right now. I mean, and uh, uh, I think the quickness on the ice is, is amazing. The skills are getting better every day, every day. Like, I mean, um, you can go through every team and the skilled players, there's more, every team has more skilled players than they did 10 years ago. Yeah, I'm watching Colorado games, watching some of the things Kale McCarr and Sam Girard can do with the puck. I mean, guys weren't pretty, doing that 10, 20 years ago. Pretty scary. I mean, Sam Girard is, is three foot four. And <laughs> uh, I mean, he still gets by. Jared Spurgeon is another one is five foot six and is great. You couldn't be that size of a defenseman uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago and get by. But uh, uh, I mean, and if you did, you were so well known. I mean, back in the 70s, Mike's. Um, Pat Stapleton was the small defenseman that was an offensive guy and everybody in the league knew about him. Now every team has one of those guys. Refing has been, of course, uh, a bit controversial of late. I mean, it always is every season, but with the whole Tim Peel thing. And uh, we kind of put out to to listeners if they had any questions for you. And there was one that kind of made us laugh. So we had to at least ask you, but what was the stupidest explanation a ref ever gave you about a call or what was happening on the ice or what he was doing? Well, I don't know exactly, but I mean, I told, I would tell refs, you're lying right to my face. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, you're, you know, it's just, you're making this up 
right in front of me right now. <laughs> and uh, um, they would go on and they would try to uh, say with a straight face when we knew they were lying, they're human beings and they got caught making a bad call. But some of them, especially the young ones, they do not want to admit they ever made a mistake. So they would sit there and lie to your face. Whereas the, the good older veterans, whether it was a Bill McCreary or a Paul Dvorsky, they would come up and they would, you know, you could have a, uh, an F, F-bomb fight with them and they'd go away and then they'd come back after the period and they'd say, did you see the, did you see the play? Uh, watch it on replay. Did I screw up? Was I wrong? Was I right? And uh, um, you'd tell them what you thought. And usually, uh, unfortunately, Tim Peel went out and said what 90% of the refs think. Yeah. Uh, we all know that refs even up calls um or it looks like it anyway and uh uh, but he went out and said it verbally which you can't do you know so how often would you like go back watch the tape and then come out for the start of the next period and like look at the guy and just say yeah i I, I went and watched it and you were way way wrong like i told you yeah every single time and i would tell the line (laughs) so i mean the linesman missed so many offsides before the offside rule came in and not one of them ever thought that they were wrong. And uh, that's really frustrating to a coach because uh, we're all wrong sometimes, but there's some refs and some linesmen that never admit to making a mistake. And uh, I don't think there's a perfect one out there. How frustrating is makeup calls? Like, like you're kind of sitting there like, shit, it's coming. Like, I, I know it's, they're just going to give them one. Well, it's part of life. I mean, if your team is up by three goals or two goals and you've had four penalties and the other team has had none, we would warn our team to make sure the phrase I used to use was check with your legs, not with your stick. Um, and you knew you were getting a penalty or two in the last eight minutes of the game. Uh, and it, you might not have had a penalty for the first 50 minutes, but the same thing you did 30 minutes ago is now going to be a penalty. And, um, I can't believe it was coincidence every time all these years. I got to believe that uh, the refs were refing the scoreboard and they do it in every sport, whether it's football, baseball. Uh, I don't know basketball as much, but I'm sure it happens there. And in hockey, they, you know, sometimes refs ref the scoreboard. I think the most frustrating thing is when you see it kind of what you just mentioned, like the exact same play in the first period is not a penalty, but somehow in the third it is. And it's kind of like, you set the tone. It's the same way with the strike zone in baseball, right? Like sometimes you watch the exact same pitch and one's a ball and one's a strike. And you're like, well, what the hell do you want me to do? Very rarely do you get thrown out of the, out of the ball game in the first or second inning, but it's usually the seventh, eighth or ninth inning when they're doing the same damn thing. And you see the same pitch all night long. And now it's a strike, you know, it's a little frustrating. Yeah. That's always the moment. So Bruce, if playoffs are starting tomorrow, Freddie's healthy, Jack Campbell's healthy. I assume David Rich won't matter. Who's your starter? Well, I mean, if Freddie hadn't played a game, I'd yeah, probably let's say he doesn't. With, and then I'd start Campbell. But uh, unless Campbell loses his next seven, um, you know, I mean, uh, I'm a big believer that losing streaks follow winning streaks. And that's what happens with uh, uh, that's what's happening with Jack right now. But uh, if he straightens out his game, I would start Jack, but if Freddie got a chance to play two or three games at the end and he looked good, I'd be starting Freddie. I know my analytics friends will get mad at me if I don't ask you this one question. So I've got to 
get this out of my off my chest. Behind the net passes are something that the research over the last few years have shown is something that really increases your shooting percentage. If you can complete a pass from below the goal line and a shot results right afterwards, its chances of going in go way up. Go way up. In Minnesota, you guys were one of the league leaders in that category when it came to creating offense in the offensive zone from below the goal line. Is that something tactically that you wanted your players to be doing that you focused on in particular? I'm just curious how that came about because it's a very interesting strategy that I think teams should be employing a bit more often. Well, we like to, to go from east to west, from north north to south. So, I mean, if we were uh, in one corner and then if we could move it to the other side and up, that's the only way that we thought we could move, get the, get the defensive team out of their structure. Um, so we tried it a lot. And if you'll look at all the teams have had that, uh, one of the, the best attributes they've had is their forechecking. So we played below the circles, uh, very well and cycled the puck very well. And when you're cycling, it's going from, it's going from side to side, back to points and everything else. And, um, that, that was just the way we played. We were, you know, I mean, we had the talent to score on the rush, but my main goal all the time was to make sure the puck got behind the defense. Because if the puck gets behind the defense, that means you haven't turned the puck over. And if you don't turn pucks over, you're usually safe most of the day. And there's a lot of other good things that come from it. The goaltender's stuck on his goal line. You get the defenseman to turn around. They can't keep track of players behind them who can get open for quick one-timers. There there have been a lot of success stories. I know KHL teams, some of them even run their power play from behind the net. I think that's uh, kind of a an underutilized area of the ice that a lot of teams could get a bit more efficient well, offense out of. Before I go, like back in the 70s, I mean, um, one of the Roger Nielsen's big things was uh, every every power play we wanted to start from below the goal line because it turns the defense around and they're looking at the guys below the goal line and you could move up top and not be seen rather than having the puck in front of you and not being able to move so i agree wholeheartedly with you it's a it's something that i learned uh uh, probably even before the 70s, I had a coach, Bill White, I'm sure he used the same thing. George Armstrong might have done it in the Marlies with me. But uh, um, uh, it's, it's a fact that it's people have gotten away from it. But I, if you still look back at some of the old tactics, they still work. Speaking of the Marlies, does your dad plan on lifting the curse anytime soon? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope. They've had their chance. They had their chance. When, they blew it. They could have got me. When you talk about all the, like a number of organizations and you've been with quite a few, uh, there's one thing I do have to ask on that. Like, is there, is there really a notable difference from organization to organization or is it really just like put on a different tracksuit and like off you go? I think every organization is different. I mean, um, there's the ones that have the money and then there's the ones that aren't very rich and they treat you a little different, but in the end, you're in the NHL and everything is still great. Yeah. And then final thing before off you go, is this the year for the Leafs? I would like to think, but uh, <laughs> I think they're playing in the weakest division. I think the, that whoever comes out of there is in for a big surprise in the semifinals. Yeah. When you run I, into a Colorado, a Vegas, I'm trying to think who else comes to mind. There's Carolina, Tampa, Tampa, Carolina, Florida, um, Boston, Pittsburgh, Boston, Pittsburgh, Washington, uh, Islanders, there's a lot of good teams in the league. Taylor yeah. Hall scoring on breakaways again, so watch out, world. I mean, the shooting percentage is on its way back. 
Yeah, yeah I don't think I, I don't think it's going to be on its way back, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's it was good for him for two games, so it's all good. Thanks again for your time, Bruce. We really appreciate it. This was awesome. You were awesome. Well, say hi to everybody in Toronto. It's always great talking to you guys. Oh, they Thank miss you. you. Everyone wants you working for the Leafs. So uh, keep up the good stuff, Bruce. And uh, hopefully we talk at some point in the future. All right. Thank you. Have a great night. You too. Bye. Oh, fucking A. Still on there, buddy. Yeah, oh, sorry. <laughs> that was really good. Sorry, just really excited. I was uh... <laughs> no problem, no problem. <laughs> okay, turn it off so I can go off. <laughs>You've been listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. For news, opinion, and analysis, make sure to go to mapleleafshotstove.com and join the conversation.